When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey Intelligence Squad listeners, I'm producer Catherine Hughes. And I'm executive producer Hannah Kay. We've got some really exciting news for you. We're launching a brand new podcast, Intelligence Squared Arts and Culture, where we'll be delving into the archive to look at the artistic and cultural movements that have shaped and are still shaping our world. Over the past 15 years, we've amassed hundreds of arts and culture debates, live events, discussions and interviews, working with some of the world's greatest minds, including Kate Winslet, Salman Rushdie, Helena Bonham Carter, Christopher Hitchens, Bernadine Evaristo, Tom Hiddleston, Stephen Fry, and countless others. To give you a little preview of what's coming up, we've put together a few clips from our favourite episodes. This first clip is from The Power of Poetry from 2018. You're going to hear two beautiful poems, one planned and one spontaneous. Our host, the BBC Sarah Montague, begins with a question for publisher and philanthropist William Seacard. But is it now got to the point where you could, I suppose, like when you go to a GP and they're just tapping into the computer, where you can say, what's your problem? And then you can, you know... Well, y- yes and no. I mean, I, it's certainly true that in, when I'm doing a pharmacy, I think I sort of, the analogy would be the GP who, who says, actually, most people suffer from the same problems. You know, they'll have some obscure illnesses coming their way. But um, my GP is antibiotics, whatever, so I suppose that's probably not... But, um, <laughs> So there's an element of that. But um, every once in a while, I'm confounded because someone walks in. And I got an email today from someone who said, my father always wanted me to be a boy. And I'm not, and I never will be, and I'm 54 and I'm still suffering. Can you send me a poem for that? And I'm still puzzling. So if anyone has any thoughts... Uh, yeah. Well, there's, there's a really good poem about being different that I just came across. Um, just called Bedazzled, I think it is. I have to remember who, I think Reader is her surname, R-E-D-E-R. Yeah. And that's just made me burst into tears. It was about, if you're mocking people who are different, about the boy who wants to wear a dress, about the person who doesn't fit into their own skin, then you should hope to have so much bravery in your heart as they do. Yes. You know, and it's really, Perfect. really good. I can, Perfect. Is okay, it we'll Did you down. say bedazzled? I is think it by it's... Anna Andrews. No, it's oh. not. I think I, I can... I tell you what, <laughs> we'll if, find if I can we'll borrow find your it. phone while you... Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll find it. There you go. I was only using it for yes. the time. But, but actually, I, I've put in, in, the, in the back of a book a little <laughs> email address, so saying if there are any poems that you recommend to help people, send them my way. OK, well, let's hear now. I think this is a poem that you're going to Oh, is it can... Golden Retrievals? Yeah. Are we there? Yes, yeah. I, I love this poem. I really do. Well, in, in 2007, I had a, a, a complete breakdown. Um, and it was 50-50 whether I'd be here, but obviously I am. And when I was recovering, I had no language of my own, and it's the first time language has ever left me. And it was very frightening. And so what I did was, I didn't know William then, but I was really doing what William prescribes, in that the only way that I could stop the crazy voices that were in my head was by reading poetry. And I used to read it out loud in front of the bathroom mirror. And as I read, the strong 
sane voice of the poem would be enough to silence the destructive, obsessive voices that were in my head. And I could see the panic disappear from my face. If you ever read poetry in front of the mirror, you do see the change in yourself, that, that, so the physiognomy, that, the physicality of poetry. Look, these guys know it better than me. The whole thing about having these lines, somehow, it's in your being, isn't it? And lying in bed recovering, I was reading a memoir by Mark Doty called Dog Ears, which is about living with dogs, living with loss. But nothing is ever just about living with dogs, is it? So this is Golden Retrievals by Mark Doty. Fetch, balls and sticks capture my attention seconds at a time. Catch, I don't think so. Bunny, tumbling leaf, a squirrel who's, oh joy, actually scared. <laughs> Sniff the wind, then I'm off again. Mock, pond, ditch, residue of any thrillingly dead thing. And you, either you're sunk in the past, half of our walk, thinking of what you never can bring back, or else you're off in some fog concerning tomorrow. Is that what you call it? My work to unsnare time's warp and woof, retrieving my haze-headed friend, you. This shining bark, a Zen master's bronzy gong, calls you here entirely now. Bow wow, bow wow, bow wow. <laughs> He's getting a job now. <laughs> brilliant, isn't it? Absolutely yeah. brilliant poem. Do, do you remember that moment? you remember the moment when you were reading that in the mirror? Mm. Yes. And also, the great thing about poetry, obviously, it, it's serious, it's profound, it's deep, but also it can just make you laugh, yeah. can't it? And it yeah. can cheer you up. And sometimes doing animal impersonations is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> have you found it? Have you found it? Found oh, go on, have a think about your questions while Sue tells us. Go on, what's the poem? Um, it's not quite right for your situation, but I just, I just really love it. So it's bedecked. It was not, not bedazzled. Uh, I'm a doofus. Um, it's by <laughs> Victoria Riedel, or Radel, R-E-D-E-L. Tell me it's wrong, the scarlet nails my son sports, or the toy store rings he clusters four jewels to each finger. He is bedecked. I see the other mothers looking at the star choker, the rhinestone strand he fastens over a sock. Sometimes I help him find sparkle clip-ons when he says sticker earrings look too fake. Tell me I should teach him it's wrong to love the glitter that a boy's only a boy who'd love a truck with a remote that revs, battery slamming into corners or hot wheels loop-de-looping off tracks into the tub. Then tell me it's fine, really, maybe even a good thing, a boy who's got some girl to him and I'm right for the days he wears a pink shirt on the seesaw in the park. Tell me what you need to tell me, but keep far away from my son, who still loves a beautiful thing, not for what it means, this way or that, but for the way facets set off prisms and prisms spin up everywhere, and from his own jeweled body he's cast rainbows, made every shining true colour. Now try to tell me, man or woman, your heart was ever once that brave. Right.
That was The Power of Poetry, recorded in London in 2018. Our next clip is from our event, Revere or Remove, the battle over statues, heritage and history. We start with our host, journalist Jonathan Friedland, asking historian David Olashoga if the whole debate over statues actually matters. Do you want to come back on this point of whether or not it matters? You know, Peter's essentially sort of saying, you know, there could be lots of Edward Colsons everywhere, and uh, unless you make an argument about it, no-one really is that bothered. Statues, for the most part, don't matter. We walk past them every day. They're grey, they're boring, almost all of them are terrible works of art. The one thing you almost never hear when you talk about removing statues is, oh, please don't, it's a wonderful work of art. Imagine if we were talking about removing paintings from the National Gallery. The art defence would be the absolute forefront of our thinking. Most of them are really naff. Peter's entirely right. Most of them are benign, but they're benign to me. But I can accept that some of them aren't benign to other people. Now, my my background is not West Indian or African-American. I'm African. My ancestors weren't enslaved, but I know people who are West Indian heritage, who live in Bristol, who talk about the genuine emotions that they feel when they walk under the statue of the man who was the governor of the Royal African Company, the company that transported more of their ancestors into slavery than any company in British history did did so with royal patronage, burning the letters RAC onto the chest of men, women, and children over the age of nine. I believe them when they say, it hurts them, that they feel humiliated by Colston on his pillar. I don't personally. I go about my life, cycle around Bristol. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a TV producer, so I obviously spend all my time having focaccia and, uh, and <laughs> goat's cheese, and I have a perfectly nice life. I don't have a chip on my shoulder. I'm not oppressed by these statues, but I know people who are, and I believe them. That's all I'm asking, that we believe people when they say, these things are oppressive. I believe them too. Um, I believe, although that this may be a debate that seems to be advanced by a vocal minority, people feel very strongly about it and do feel oppressed by those statues. No, no, I believe them. I believe them. However, I don't think we should organise public space around their feelings. I think uh, to do so would to kind of weaponise this debate and emotion... And that would, be, um, that would be the wrong thing to do. I think you, we have to ask, is this the best way to deal with inequality today? I would say no. It's certainly not. The problems that Peter talked about, after we talked about, it certainly isn't. Is it a dangerous distraction? I think so. Because what we're effectively doing is enslaving ourselves by the past. We are not moving on from it. You know, it is no, you do have to ask, why has this debate happened now? Those statues have been around for a very long time. And I think it has come in a context where the past has become almost like the solution to contemporary problems. Most and of the statues were contested at the time. Many of them were contested when they were put up. Can you it's give not that? true that, that, that this is suddenly a manifestation of liberal political correctness. That's just not true. These statues were contested throughout the time. Let's remember that the first Roads Must Fall campaign was in the 1950s, and it was white Boer students who wanted roads removed because of the Second Boer War. 
it's just not true. It's historically untrue to say that this is a modern, contemporary, frivolous debate. It's as old as statues. That's why they topple. That's why they fall. And it's part of the process Peter's talking about, that statues inevitably fall. They fall out of favor or they fall apart. This debate is part of that process. It's not some sort of anomaly or some sort of you know, artificial situation created by a bunch of Guardian journalists. And so just, just to inform this bit of the conversation, why don't you, because I know you've written about this, say something about the context in the United States about these Confederate generals on horseback often, which people assume were built in the Civil War and therefore we mustn't take them down because the Civil War is a big part of American history. The history of their construction is slightly different. Can you just well, fill this, people this in? Is, this is another myth. We presume these statues are much older than they were. We almost always presume, because they're meant to look old, and they weather and they look grey and awful very quickly. We presume they're old. Most of the statues of the Civil War, which was 61 to 65, were not put up in 1866, when people were, uh, the wounded and the, the, the veterans were still alive. There's a great burst of statues being put up around the time of 1919, at the end of the First World War. Around the same time, 21 African-American soldiers were lynched for wearing their uniforms in public, having got back from the Western Front. These statues were put up then because there was a moment when there was hope for black rights, for black voting rights. And these statues were imposed on the South, on majority black towns, as a way of saying, you stay in your place. These statues have a function. The function is not to remember the Civil War. It is to intimidate black Americans. And the second burst is in the 1960s when civil rights began. So some of these statues are actually younger than the people defending them, rallying around with Confederate flags around their plinth saying, this is my history. They're younger than you are. (laughs) They're not your history. You're your history. That was Revere or Remove, recorded in London in 2018. To end on a high, our last clip is a funny one from our event, Satire in an Age of Absurdity. We're going to hear Armando Iannucci, Jess Phillips and Jan Ravens discuss the boundaries of satire and what happens when satire becomes reality. Here's our host, writer and broadcaster, Samira Ahmed. Do you treat male and female public figures slightly differently? And are there, even if they're unspoken rules? I think well, I, did, I did have to call out sometimes the scripts for Theresa May. I would sort of say, well, that's actually not her. That's, that's misogyny. You know, there was a lot of misogyny. The way she was treated in Europe... And then it was so galling to see Boris Johnson there and the all sort of going, yeah, yeah, you know, good on you, mate. And We've all got like, a chat. What suddenly yes. happened? Yeah. Um, Is there something, you, an example in the script that you felt, no, we're not going to do that? Y- yeah, 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 sometimes, yeah. Can you give an example? Yes, I have to be the, you know, the misogyny police. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll give an example from Newswatch, which is not deliberately satire. But, you know, we get viewers' comments in. <laughs> and it's really interesting. We get certain male viewers saying, no, those two female presenters, they were gossiping like fishwives <laughs> the phrase like fishwives yeah. and I've had this conversation with my producer to say we're not putting phrases like that on air no you know yeah you have to be very alert to yeah, no one's ever described Boris Johnson as being feisty no or Boris. a fishwife people wife, say that yeah. about me all <laughs> or bubbly yes yeah or bubbly vivacious yeah. yes vivacious yes. Boris Johnson <laughs> do you know do I like about Boris Johnson he's sassy yeah yes, <laughs> So much sass. <laughs> There's... He really gives them what for, Boris. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jess, what's your definition of satire and how do you view it? Well, I think if it's not funny, it is just cruel and it is just uh, often... Uh, personally, I think... I can't think of a good example of a good satire that isn't funny. 
Well, I mean, there were some things on spitting image, and if you if you, and if you, oh, yeah. I mean, and if you look mean, back, my view of spitting image as a kid who grew up in the 1980s is that that is what I thought politics was. Yes, it's funny yes. that um, yes. that is what I ended up doing. And I remember when I was first elected, I was in the first ever parliamentary Labour Party meeting in in a room not dissimilar to this, um, and like Neil Kinnock was sat next to me, and I was just taking photos of him oh. for my dad <laughs> because it was like being in a live episode of spitting, spitting Image. image. <laughs> um, um, and, I mean, I, I think that... I, I, I don't mind... I, I don't think that the being cruel about people or, mm. or sending people up... If it's not funny, I don't like it because I like to be entertained. And people can say whatever they like about me, actually, as long as it's got a good gag attached to it, I will laugh, is essentially the truth. I, I think that good satire... Um, most of the time, people like me shouldn't take offence to it. I don't watch the sort of idiotic characters on the thick of it and, and think, oh, well, you know, this is what has led to people thinking that, you know, I deserve to die or that I'm useless and that I'm living on some sort of gravy train. Mm. I, I look at them and I think, oh, I know that chap. <laughs> there is a Ben Swain in every room in Westminster. Oh, yeah. I... Um... The very first episode of The Thick of It have, has them in the back of a car on the way to make an announcement, big, a big spending uh, commitment, and then Malcolm rings up and says, the Prime Minister's pulling it, you've got no money. Well, I've summoned the nation's press. We'll just come up with something. Um, and we were filming it, and, and we, we shot the scene, and we still had 10 minutes to go until we got to the next location. So I said, well, why don't you improvise just trying to come up with a policy in the back of a car? And so the <laughs> actors just improvised. Now, within five years, three of those policies had... <laughs> had become law. Um, Glenn, Glenn, everyone should have their own plastic bags so that we don't have to keep pay, paying for plastic bags. Um, I mean, that's a great policy. Great policy. <laughs> Hugh Abbott, uh, pet asbos, which came in quite soon afterwards. And Chris, pet, pet asbos. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, and... Um, Chris Addison came in with a national spare room database, which became the bedroom tag. So. <laughs> that was Satire in an Age of Absurdity, recorded in London in 2020. Join us every week as we go through the archives and into the heart of the cultural conversation. Whether you're a seasoned art lover or just curious about the world around you, this is the podcast for you. Just search Intelligence Squared Arts and Culture wherever you get your podcasts.